This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. In the conclusion of last week's program, I talked about an exciting article which I sent via electronic mail from the Washington Post talking about this curious finding in the Badlands of North Dakota that apparently caught in the fossil record the exact moment, well, let's say the exact hours of that impact in what was at that time the seafloor near the Yucatan Peninsula that killed off the dinosaurs. This is a truly interesting story, and we hope to uh, go to the New Yorker, their April 8th edition, in our second segment today to talk a little bit about that saga. It, it is it's quite a colorful tale, and I'm looking forward to spending a little bit of time on that subject. But uh, at the top of the show, rather than talk about disaster that happened 63 million years ago, let's talk about what's happening right now in the Bay Area as California experiences one of its wettest winters in many a year. We sometimes seem stuck for good news on this program, but, uh, but happily that's not the case today as we talk about the fact that down near the Don Edwards National Wildlife Refuge, in fact, I guess in this case it's, an, it's a, a Warm Springs unit attached to the refuge, life is busting out all over. I, I thought this article was originally about vernal pools uh, near the south part of San Francisco Bay, but it's a rather more complicated story. The area in question was originally homesteaded in the 1890s. It was a landscape grazed by cattle throughout the 1900s while being operated as a private duck hunting club. Over time, it became the site of what my mom used to refer to as Fremont's Cultural Center. Yes, Fremont is my hometown. She was referring to the Fremont Drags which used to produce automobile noises so loud, I recall hearing them while hiking in the hills, miles and miles from the site. There was also a glider airport at this location. Many decades ago, I purchased a glider ride and was towed out of that, uh, out of that area and floated above the Fremont area in a glider going like 45 miles an hour with the top open. That was a very cool experience. But the gliders are long gone, and the uh, racetrack is long gone, and back in the 1990s, they did some construction in the area, an area called Pacific Commons, a development of retail and tech companies like Proges, Concentrix, Macroton, Cinex, but thankfully not Theranos. That went, into, that went into Newark. To offset the damage done to the wildlife refuge, ponds were constructed. Once it, they demonstrated that they could hold water, they were fertilized with the eggs of shrimp. Tadpole shrimp, a very popular uh, inhabitant of California's vernal pools. So even though they're not, I suppose you'd say, genuine vernal pools, there's 250 of them. They're all over the landscape, and they're busting with life at present. I guess they've built some underground nest boxes to try and attract burrowing owls. They have allowed beef cattle back in the area because biologists discovered that uh, short grass creates a better habitat for ground squirrels and raptors. They evidently try and control some of the invasive weeds in this area. Sounds like a, a managed wildlife area, but uh, I guess it's working. I remember once going on a hike outside of Irvine uh, back when I was in medical school. These were dry, barren hills, seemingly. 
in the area of Turtle Rock in Irvine, but uh, it had rained a lot. I think it set the record back uh, back in those days for California rain. I think LA got 37 inches that year. And man, there were vernal pools everywhere filled with tadpoles. And although I didn't check, I presume tadpole shrimp, etc. It's a bit sad to note that vernal pools used to flourish throughout California, but now it's believed as much as 87% of those ecosystems have been plowed under, paved over, and built upon. Most of the best remaining pools are under private ownership. Sadly, I will not be able to report uh, on a tour of these vernal pools because they are considered uh, so important uh, to the ecological value of the area that they are, in fact, closed to the public. But apparently they start to dry up a bit, then people will be led in to take a look at the wildflowers present. I, I hope to be there for part of that and to report on it for you, my dear listener. You know, you used to start every show with a quote and a quip. And we haven't done that in quite a while, but I think I want to bring up at least one quote today from the writer G.K. Chesterton, who once said, The whole object of travel is not to set foot on foreign land. It is, at last, to set foot on one's own country as a foreign land. And the quip I would add to that is that it's hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. And I suspect it is people firmly planted inside the frame that are numbered among that 29% of Americans who think that President Trump has been cleared of wrongdoing by the Mueller report. The Mueller report, which has not been released, but which the Attorney General gave us a summary of. Nothing to see here, folks. Keep moving. 40% of the public, according to NBC News and the Wall Street Journal, believe that the president has not been cleared. 31% are not sure. Radio Parallax is pretty sure that he has not been cleared. How can we say that? Well, let's quote from the article by Nicholas Fandos, Michael Schmidt, and Mark Mazzetti that appeared in the Washington Post. They said that some of Robert Mueller's investigators have told associates that Attorney General William Barr failed to adequately portray the findings of their inquiry. And that they were more troubling for President Donald Trump than Barr indicated. That's according to government officials and others familiar with their simmering frustrations. William Barr, our Attorney General, has said he would move quickly to release the nearly 400-page report. Yeah, he's moving at lightning speed. But needed time to scrub out confidential information. The special counsel's investigators had already written multiple summaries of the report, and some team members believe that Barr should have included more of their material in the four-page letter he wrote on March 24th, laying out their main conclusions. That's according to government officials familiar with the investigation. Yeah, I'm a guy who's old enough to remember the Warren report. Gotta admit, it did tidy up the investigation into what happened to JFK, no matter how many facts they had to omit. And I remember when uh, they put G. Gordon Liddy on trial for uh, the, the Watergate burglary. The government called Liddy the Mr. Big of Watergate. But you know, doggone it, there turned out to be more to the story after all. We suspect there's going to turn out to be more to Russiagate after all. We'll have to just wait and see. One buddy of mine sent me an email saying that he's pretty sure this uh, tightens the whole matter up, and uh, I bet him 10,000 rubles that he's wrong. And speaking of money, we often talk about Silicon Valley and how it's been alleged that uh, there's more money in Silicon Valley than there is in all of Saudi Arabia. But you know what? I'm starting to wonder about that statistic. Evidently, Saudi Aramco, the oil firm owned, owned by the royal family, well, with, I guess, uh, a stake by lots of others uh, in the big oil industry, whom they are in bed with, they released a report last week showing that it wasn't Apple 
or Amazon, but in fact Aramco that was the world's most profitable company. Saudi Aramco said its income was $111 billion. That's the income, which dwarfs that of Apple at $60 billion and even ExxonMobil at $21 billion. Despite taxes of roughly 50%, Aramco's figures painted a picture of a company with unmatched financial heft. These details were revealed for the first time in a prospectus for a $10 billion bond sale. But some have referred to the disclosures as a coming-out party before Saudi officials list the world's largest oil producer publicly. It should be noted, by the way, that uh, our crack investigators that work for the federal executive branch continue to look into this matter of what happened to uh, Jamal Khashoggi in the Turkish embassy. The government's not admitting complicity in this, at least Mohammed bin Salman, the heir to the throne, is uh, saying, one me. Nevertheless, Saudi authorities have given the children of the murdered journalist millions of dollars in cash and mansions to compensate for the killing of their father in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul six months ago. The Washington Post reported this week that Khashoggi, a U.S. resident and a Washington Post columnist who frequently criticized the regime, four adult children, at least two of whom were U.S. citizens. Each has received a $4 million villa in the family's home city of Jeddah and a monthly payment of $10,000, compensation that was approved by Saudi Arabia's King Salman. It should be noted that a larger payout, possibly in the millions, could come when blood money negotiations take place after the trials of Khashoggi's accused killers. That's expected to be completed in the coming months. U.S. intelligence agencies concluded that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered a 15-man hit squad to kill and dismember the columnist. The United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says, well, you know, we're going to look into this. But uh, my goodness, the Saudis have certainly been very cooperative in, uh, in, in our investigations. Meanwhile, here at home, Saudi Arabian officials seeking to retaliate against Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos hacked his phone and gained private information. This is according to Bezos' security advisor, Gavin DeBecker. The Saudis have allegedly sought to harm Bezos since last October, when the Washington Post, which he owns, began aggressively investigating the role of Saudi leaders in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. DeBecker recently finished an investigation into how the National Enquirer obtained intimate text messages between Bezos and his girlfriend. He said it was very unusual that the tabloid seemed eager to reveal its source, which they claims is Lauren Sanchez's brother, Michael. Sanchez says the Inquirer had already seen text exchanges between his sister and Bezos when he was contacted last July, although DeBecker could not confirm whether the Inquirer knew the Saudis had hacked Bezos. And in other intelligence sleuthing news, we have this, which we find rather irresistible here at Radio Parallax. Apparently, a Chinese national carrying four cell phones, an external hard drive, a laptop, and a thumb drive infected with malicious software got arrested last week at Mar-a-Lago, which is President Trump's private club. Yu Jing Zhang was charged with lying to the Secret Service in order to gain entry to the club, initially saying she'd come for a swim. <laughs> I, I presume she brought her waterproof bag for the laptop. Zhang allegedly then told a Mar-a-Lago employee that she was there to attend a non-existent United Nations Chinese American Association event. When federal agents tried to interview Zhang, she allegedly became verbally aggressive, 
claiming she was told by a friend to travel from Shanghai to Mar-a-Lago to speak with a member of President Trump's family about U.S.-China economic relations. Federal authorities had reportedly been probing whether Chinese intelligence has targeted Mar-a-Lago and are now examining whether Zhang is part of such an effort. And we don't know who Rick Riley is, but apparently he's got a new book out. He's a sports writer. He quotes dozens of golf partners of Donald Trump as saying he routinely and flagrantly cheats, giving himself a do-over for shots he hits into water hazards, having his caddy move the ball from the rough into the fairway, and even kicking an opponent's ball off the green and into a bunker. Said Rick Riley, in golf, he's definitely not exonerated. Mr. Millen does ask at this point, is anyone out there surprised by this, really? Because after all, it seems so unlike the man. You know, at this point, I think I want to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Washington Post, it was apparently a good week last week for conservation with the news that Indonesia's Komodo Island is shutting down because people keep smuggling out the dragons. Oh, the Komodo dragon is, in fact, a monitor lizard. A very big monitor lizard. The world's largest monitor lizard. And by the way, dear listener, if you've never heard the Bob and Ray skit on the Komodo dragon, we highly suggest that you noodle around on the internet until you find it. Give it a good listen. And then drop us a line at inforadioparallax.com. At any rate, if you had your heart set on traveling to Komodo, which is in the Lesser Sunda chain of islands in the Republic of Indonesia, well, they're not going to let you in until January of 2020 to give the authorities a chance to, I supposedly, rebuild the population. I don't think they, I don't think they breed that quickly. Anyway, the authorities in Indonesia decided to close the island days after nine men were arrested on suspicion of selling more than 40 of the dragons for about $35,000 each. Now, I don't know why Komodo dragons lend themselves to comedy, but as I recall, there was also a hilarious scene in the movie The Freshman. A scene, if my memory serves me correctly, involving a Komodo dragon, Miss America pageant host, Burt Parks, and a sombrero. Anyway, I do hope to visit the island of Komodo before I check off this earth. The closest I've gotten is Bali. But I don't want to go if the lizards are in danger. So I think we, you know, should all just put this off for a while and hope they can do the right thing and stop the smugglers. Anyway, continuing along, according to The Week magazine, in this case, it was a bad week for nativism. After the Associated Press reported that Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke gave a speech in his native Spanish in El Paso, Texas. O'Rourke, whose real first and middle names are Robert Francis, is in fact of Irish descent. O'Rourke, Irish. Of course, Mr. Miller points out his mother could be Mexican, but the fact is I don't think she is. And by the way, down Mexico way, there are many Irish names that are in fact revered as part of the Mexican Revolution. When the United States had one of history's most unfair wars and invaded our uh, neighbor to the south back in the 1840s, apparently a bunch of Irishmen uh, embedded in the Union troops were so outraged by the desecration of the Catholic churches, which the Americans met along the way, that they switched sides and joined the Mexicans. And apparently it was an ugly week 
you'd have to say, for Russia's intentions upon again becoming a superpower, with the revelation that Russia has the worst sanitation facilities in the developed world. A fifth of Russian households, that's 35 million people, lack access to indoor toilets. A study by Rossat, the Federal Statistics Service, found that the problem is worse in rural areas where two-thirds of households have no indoor toilets or reliable hot water. Most of these households use outhouses or pit toilets. By the way, the Russian Presidential Academy of the National Economy says 22% of Russians can't buy anything beyond basic staples needed for subsistence. Here's the part I like. President Vladimir Putin has set a goal of cutting the poverty rate in half by the end of his current presidential term in 2024. As I recall, they had communism in the old Soviet Union for like three quarters of a century, and they, they, they failed to end poverty? Huh. And finally, in an item that we're not sure whether it's good, bad, or ugly, you know, it might be, it might be equal parts of all three, but here's the story. Some cannabis growers in California are paying Jewish rabbis to certify their products as kosher. Because the federal government still considers marijuana illegal, growers cannot apply for labels such as organic or GMO-free. Thus, growers are asking for a kosher certification from rabbinical authorities, according to Josh Drayton of the California Cannabis Industry Association, who said... Folks deserve to know what they're consuming is healthy. To which we say, oi. Well, let's turn back for a minute to Russia. They don't have indoor toilets, but they apparently are working on developing gliding missiles. Yes, apparently both Russia and the United States are working on a new generation of hypersonic missiles. Because frankly, what the world needs is better ways of delivering nuclear warheads to uh, their targets, right? Now, for reasons we cannot understand, both the Trump administration here and the Putin administration there seem to like the idea of ramping up the old Cold War and building up our missile arsenals. Trump certainly has made no secret that he like a new generation of atomic weapons at his disposal. What could possibly go wrong? Anyway, these are bad times for arms control. The current issue of The Economist has a really scary diagram in it showing what you can do with these gliding missiles. How does they spend most of their time traveling their targets? Below the radar. That's great if you're intent upon blowing up the world, but if you want to have a system built into where you'll have, let's just say, a variable response to what's about to happen, well, that's, that's no bueno. Of course, I was kind of blown away by some of the logic that was explained in The Economist, if that's what you want to call it. I don't, it doesn't sound very logical to me. But the magazine did note that such gliders... These hypersonic gliders have several advantages. Ballistic missiles are less agile and tend not to be very accurate. Oh, well, how inaccurate, you ask? Well, the Minuteman 3 ICBM, the backbone of our nuclear arsenal, has a circular error probable of about 120 meters. Oh, my God, it could be as much as huh, 400 feet off. Now, you'd think that'd be close enough for a half a megaton weapon. Well, in this case, it's, it's half of them are expected to be within that circle. But, you know, half of them might be, might be 400 feet off. So they note that that's fine for nuclear bombs, but useless for hitting a ship or hitting a plane on a runway. Well, isn't that why we built them by the hundreds and by the thousands so that taking one out wouldn't change things? I mean, taking one out might have worked in 
1959. But they were touting the fact that these these cruise missiles are 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 are, are very accurate. One could be sent through a window. So listening to NPR, uh, I don't know, yesterday morning, a couple mornings ago, I guess, and they were talking about the Star Wars missile defense system that Ronald Reagan proposed back in 1983. Well, evidently, Donald Trump continues to think this is a great idea. We need more of this. Trump has been led to believe that we're on the verge of many breakthroughs that would allow this to be possible. Well, NPR pointed out that, well, lasers are smaller, and they are more powerful, and they are more accurate. But if you've got a bunch of stuff orbiting the Earth that has to quickly assess and shoot down a uh, incoming ballistic missile, it's almost certain to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So to ensure that you're going to be in the right place at the right time, you have to put up hundreds, if not thousands of them. Reagan was also very big on the idea of using a particle accelerator, space-age weapon, to, uh, to knock out missiles. But uh, even today, particle accelerators, where you, you know, whipped that uh, whip charged particles, uh, electrons, protons, whatever, really high rates of speed that you can use them as weapons, well, they require tracks that are miles long and have enormous energy consumption. No one has the foggiest idea how you could possibly put one of these things up in space and make it work. But I digress. If we had hypersonic gliders, this would all be a moot point anyway. You can't shoot these things down until they leave the atmosphere. Oh, and by the way, back in the 80s, it was at least theoretically possible to shoot down a Russian missile because the Russian missiles at that time burned past the atmosphere. We designed our missiles to stop burning before they left the atmosphere, meaning that Russia would not be able to defend, assuming the thing would work, which is quite a large assumption. They could have not shot down our missiles even then, before we had hypersonic gliders. So why are we doing all this crazy stuff, Mr. McMillan? because I'm in a mood to be scared at the moment. I thought I would cite another piece that just sends chills up my spine. Questioning article in The Economist from their March 30th issue that said, uh, inflation in America continues to be surprisingly low. Noted the article, almost 10 years into the recovery from the financial crisis, American monetary policymakers are still finding that inflation is strangely quiescent. Every time price pressure seems to build, they then dissipate. That's really an ugly thought, inflation. If you lived through the late 1970s, you would recall the time when inflation hit like, what was it, 10%? When prices go way up, the money that you hold goes way down in value. As reported on Radio Parallax, thanks to the policies of the United States federal government, which has cut taxes but not cut spending, we're now borrowing to the tune of like $200 billion a month to run the government. That's a month. Back in the 1980s, when David Stockman admitted sheepishly that the Reagan administration was going to have to run a deficit of like $200 billion for the entire year, everybody was shocked. Clearly, I think the solution to this is to approach this as an economist would, this problem. 
Their method, which is the tried-and-true method of economists, is to take a look at something, ponder it a bit, look at it from one side, look at it from the other side, and then formulate a solution by saying, let's assume that doesn't happen. And I hope, dear listener, you're enjoying this bogus scandal about uh, how certain parents are working to get their kids into private elite universities by pulling strings. Of course, all the headlines seem to be focusing in on Hollywood starlets (laughs) busy doing this and not focusing in so much on, say, congressmen who might, say, arrange to get their knucklehead kid admitted into Yale and then to Harvard Business School, even though he wasn't, let's just say, the sharpest knife in the drawer. But yes, my goodness, it appears there's gambling going on here. Oh, and if that little zinger is lost on you because you've never seen the classic 1943 movie Casablanca, do yourself a favor and see it. Everybody loves Bogey. Everybody loves Ingrid Bergman. But give me Claude Rains and also Sidney Greenstreet. Something else we highly recommend, dear listener, if you've never checked it out, is the HBO series Silicon Valley. We rank it up there with the Larry Sanders show <laughs> among the best things ever appear on, on the small screen. I'm in the process of watching the entire series for the third go-through, and I keep seeing things I missed the first time and second. Apparently, author Barbara Ehrenreich has a thing or two to say about this. Described as a social justice activist, she wrote the 2001 book Nickel and Dimed, described as a seminal effort. She's age 77. She says, our wellness obsession and warped attitudes about aging go hand in hand. Health is just the absence of disease. She says, well, the rich want more than that. They want to be as perfect as they can be. That mindset has taken over Silicon Valley, where tech moguls are seeking to double their lifespans. She says, if you're one of the richest and smartest people in the world, death is an insult. Why would you let that happen to you? You're too special to die. And the Week magazine signed in on this in their briefing section which opened with the question, what is biohacking? The answer was Silicon Valley is built on the idea that technology can optimize or quote-unquote hack any aspect of our lives, so why not the human lifespan? Until recently, anyone hawking pills or treatments that promised to restore youthfulness was considered a quack, yet a growing number of transhumanists are convinced that in time human beings can be transformed through bioengineering and that aging will be curable, just like any other malady. Aubrey de Grey, a regenerative medicine researcher backed by tech mogul Peter Thiel, insists that someone alive today will live to be 1,000. Well, the article describes a couple of possible ways that, you know, human life might be extended. goes on to refer to the poster boy of biohacking, David Asprey, the founder of Bulletproof Coffee. He recently turned 45. He certainly is going to live to be at least 180. Last year, a doctor extracted stem cells from his bone marrow and injected them in organs and joints throughout his body, a process Aspie intends to repeat twice annually in the belief he's refreshing his body with brand new cells. Well, we'll see. Peace notes that by Silicon Valley standards, Aspie's lifespan goal is modest. Oracle's famously arrogant co-founder Larry Ellison says he finds mortality incomprehensible. And Google's co-founders, along with Mark Zuckerberg, are also investing in ways to extend human life. Not everybody is on board with this. Political scientist Francis Fukuyama cited the transhumanist movement as among the most serious threats to humanity. 
not only because of the potentially disastrous consequences of botched treatments, but also because of the equally alarming possibilities of success. For centuries, claims that one group of people was superior to another were based on junk science and myth. If the dreams of biohacking are realized, wealthy people who can afford a wide array of enhancements will be genuinely superior to the rest of humanity. British technology ethicist Blay Whitley has warned we need to think about the implications before it is too late. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's let's take a short break. We got lots more to talk about. 